you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. Breakups are really the best diet plans on the market. Anytime that I have gone through a major breakup, it seems like I've dropped 50 or 60 pounds, which is a lot. And after this thing happened with Elizabeth, I was just sick. It's like you just you can't eat, you can't sleep. It's just this grief. It's almost worse than a death because that person is still on the planet and it's like they're out of your life all of a sudden and all the routines that you have are just, everything just shifts so quickly. And so after this news, she decided to go ahead and stay with a friend and you know, she would kind of pop in and out, but we were pretty much at at each other's throats, like we couldn't really talk. And I was in a lot of pain from this. And I really didn't expect this severe amount of grief. And I think that there comes a point in your in your psyche with trauma and grief and the buildup of all of these feelings that, you know, I try to avoid. And it's like you hit a bottom with it. It's like one huge bottom again. And it's kind of like, God, how many bottoms do you have to hit in your life to be able to just fucking wake up? And I felt like I just continually set myself up for these I guess, learning situations, but was I learning anything? And I'm, am I creating this drama in order to keep some sort of adrenaline in my body? And so we had to get the legal papers out and we had decided if we had ever broken up that we would sell the house. And so we put the house on the market and it was on the market and nothing was happening. The market wasn't that busy in Asheville at that point. And so I sort of stayed at the house and she was gone. And I started having some real issues. And I had an ovarian cyst rupture and ended up, you know, having to deal with that and, and 
I ended up going to this acupuncturist and she was very well known and she had studied in India and she was the best in Asheville and she had a big acupuncture center and she, I just went in and told her everything and I remember her putting needles across my abdomen and lighting these little, what to me looked like little chunks of hash and they were lined up across me and I would look down and see all this flaming right at my torso, you know, at your stomach. And she was amazing. I mean, she really helped me. And I was, you know, because I couldn't do the certain hormone treatments and the kind of stuff they try to give you for that. It just makes you crazy. And I finally got somebody to watch the shop for me. And I flew down to Florida. But before I went, I drove to Atlanta and I was going to leave my dogs at my friend Susie's. And... So I'd left Burr Haney and, and Davy, and Susie's mom was staying with her and, and her mother's boyfriend, whose name was Ralph, and they were real sweet, and they loved animals. And so I was going down to Florida and just trying to understand what this had, all this had happened, and I went to a friend's, and I remember us walking down the beach one day, and... I remember looking at the sun shining down. You know how the beams come down and it's like this. To me, it always reminded me of an escalator, like the sunbeams that shoot down through the clouds. It's either like an escalator or a staircase. And, and I told my friend we were walking down the beach. I said, when I was a kid, I would always think that Jesus was like going to come down that escalator. And she started laughing and she says, well, just imagine Jesus coming down the escalator with his reading glasses on his nose, holding a little sign that says, mismatch, like Jesus was kind of gay and saying, mismatch, it's a mismatch. And she was referring to the relationship between Elizabeth and I. And we started laughing and she says, maybe it's just a mismatch, Jill. You know, you don't have to make such a big thing out of it, you know, and, and she was right, but I just couldn't get over it. Like it was really, really bothering me. And I'm sure my ego was bruised because somebody cheated on me. But you know what? I mean, I set it up. I think I look back on it and I can see my part because I've been trained to stop blaming and look at yourself. And I need to look at my side of the street and what did I do to create this? And so... I had to take responsibility for my part in this, and I couldn't just blame Elizabeth for what she'd done, and God knows I'd done it, and I had, it was like karma, you know, and it was this karmic, what goes around comes around thing, and I think a lot of times too, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they teach you to make amends, and, and there were some amends that I had not made yet, because I could not bring myself to tell some of these things I had done because I was not only just mortified and embarrassed, but completely just ashamed. And so I, I held and I would think, you know, well, one day when it presents itself, then I'll make the amends. And especially like to my boss, you know, Mohan, the guy, the Indian guy back at the 
office supply store. He was always on the back burner. I just didn't want to hurt people. I just felt like I just hurt so many people. And out of my selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption that I didn't even know I was having. It's like when you don't know that you don't know that you don't know. It's almost impossible to come to some sort of, you know, terms or acceptance of your own devastation. So I continued with the shop and I really enjoyed having the shop and my friends down at the Ginkgo Tree would invite me down to have dinner and they'd call it grief dinners and They'd say, come on down and grieve, just grieve, just feel the pain, just go through it. And so I was. And I was starting to have a lot of different people come in the shop. And so this one day, this lady came in and she was really intrigued with everything. And she bought a couple of these gargoyle statues and she said she had a collection, and I was like, oh, really, you know. And so she she invited me to a meditation group that was at her house on Wednesday nights. And, of course, I was just like, oh, okay, but I, I didn't mean it. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I got lonely enough and desperate enough that I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it. Jill, just be open. And so I went to her house, and... When I pulled up to that house, when she said she had a few statues, oh my God, that entire front yard was like angels and gargoyles and all these statues, like hundreds. And it kind of flipped me out, but, you know, went ahead and went to the door and she opened the door. Oh, come in. And there were probably about 12 people in a circle in this living room and I didn't know anybody and she welcomed me and introduced me to everybody and there's this one guy leading the meditation group and his name was Bodie he's kind of an old hippie kind of guy and so you know it just started with some breathing and then we went through the two-hour session and it was fine and people were very nice, but it was such a weird vibe from what I was used to with my groups back in Atlanta and my recovery groups. And it was same principles, I guess you could say, but just a really different kind of energy. And it made me a little bit uncomfortable. But I also realized that being uncomfortable is okay. Sometimes you just got to push through that uncomfortability and be with it because whatever I'm uncomfortable about is probably what I need to work on. And so I continued to go to, to that group on Wednesday evenings and, and I met a few people there and it was okay. And, and uh, one thing that I forgot to mention, when I came back from Florida to pick up the dogs, Susie's mother had really taken a liking to Davy. Well, when I came in, Susie looked at me and she goes, well, I got to tell you something. I said, what? She said, Mama's didn't rename that dog. And I said, what? And she said, she calls him Little. Not Little, but Little. And she said, come here, Little. 
And I said, are you kidding? And he was real little because he was the runt and he was just so small for his, you know, his age and everything. And so her mother had cancer and she was not doing great, but she named that dog Little. And I took him back home, him and Burr, and his name forever was Little. Little. And he was precious. And so, you know, there I was with Little and Burr Haney in this house. Elizabeth was gone. And I was just, one day I decided, I don't know why I was there. And I heard the door unlocking. And I got real scared. I was just sitting there. And all of a sudden the door opened and it was Elizabeth. And she came in and she looked real shocked to like what I was doing home on a weekday in the daytime. I don't know if I'd come home to get something. I don't even know why I was there. But she came in and she was all tan and and looked like she'd been somewhere, you know, and had her a couple of things with her. But she was coming to get some things. And she was real shocked that I was there. And I looked at her and she looked at me. And all of a sudden she says, I don't want to be with Tracy. She's she's the baby pool. And you're the ocean. And I said, what? And she said, she's shallow like a baby pool. But you're deep like the ocean. And we kind of started laughing. And we kind of had this moment, you know, we spent the day together and we kind of thought, well, maybe we could try. And But on some level, I think we both knew that we couldn't go back. And so we kind of spent maybe a week or so just sort of contemplating whether we could do this. And my uncle had died and I had to go to Atlanta and she sent like the largest bouquet at the entire funeral which was kind of bizarre because I don't think she really knew him but it was very sweet she was always really generous and kind and she had a lot of etiquette around things that I think is kind of a lost art I think there's many many people who have lost the, the art of etiquette of you know if there's grief or sorrow or death or celebration You know, people just sort of send a text or a little email. But she was always really good about cards and flowers and things like that. And I just, I really loved her for that. And so finally, I was in the shower one day. And that's where I have my best ideas, it seems. This little voice was like, why don't I just buy her out? Instead of trying to sell the house, just buy the house. And it was a very strong feeling. And so I called my banker and I talked about it. And and I called Elizabeth and I said, you know, uh, can I just buy you out? And, I, and that's what ended up happening. So I bought her out of her part of the house and we made agreements and I kept the house. And so there I am. I've got the house, the two dogs, the enchanted garden, and I'm living life. And one day this woman walks in the shop and she was a very interesting woman. She was really um, very present. And she had kind of long hair. She reminded me of Carol King, the singer. And she had very kind eyes. And she was really a peaceful person. 
And she said, yeah, I heard about this place, and, and I just wanted to come check it out for myself. And she started looking around and you know, asking me questions about things. And I'd shown her some of the pieces I'd worked on. And so she said, I'd really like you to come out to my house. And I've got an area down in the woods that I'd really like to show you because I would like you to, to create something for me. Because she, once she saw all this work I'd done in the shop with the the layout and the water features and the furniture, just the whole thing was really intriguing to her. So I made a date with her and I went out and I went and way deep in the woods. And it was near the Shope Creek Wilderness. And I'm driving and I'm driving and I'm driving and I'm like, where am I? I finally come upon this house in the deep woods, and I mean, it was like a Hansel and Gretel house. This thing was like, it was like something in a fairy tale, and I thought, well, no wonder she liked the shop, because this would fit right in. It had like a little round window, and it was rock. The house was rock, and it was cool. She met me at the door in this really cool wooden door, you know, and it was like the arch over the top and took me in the house. We went through the entire house and her house had actually been in the Asheville paper. It was like whatever architect had done it had just really made this place. When you were inside, you felt like you were in a treehouse looking out and I just loved it. Her mantle, the woodwork, the stonework, it was just right up my alley. I just loved it. And so she went on to tell me that she was a hospice nurse and that she worked with the dying. And I found this very interesting because she talked about the veil and how the veil is very thin when people are ready to pass. And so I listened to her and you know, and then she said, well, come on, I want to take you down and show you this. And so we go walking down in these woods and we're going deeper into the woods. And there's this gorgeous creek, babbling brook, you know, with the moss and the stones. It was just beautiful and the, just ferns and all natural, but just like heaven, just like the most picturesque kind of stream and trees and I was just loving it. So we go down and and we stood at this one area and she pointed and it was almost like this area had been circled out or something by nature. And right at, across from this circle, this area, there was this boulder and it looked like one of those overstuffed chairs like from the 90s and it was huge. And it looked, I mean, it literally looked like a love seat kind of overstuffed chair. And she said, I wanted you to see that rock. And I was like, wow. And we started walking closer and she said, look at what's in it. And it was just textured in garnets. And it had these tiny little red fleckings of garnet all over it. And she said, now I really want you to sit in it. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, just take a seat. She said, I think you might understand this. And I sat down 
And I put my arms, I mean, it literally almost had armrest. And I sat there and I kind of held my back up straight and I kind of got grounded. And all of a sudden, it was as if somebody had injected me with a shot of morphine. I mean, I went down. I got so relaxed and so almost sleepy, but just in this almost dreamlike state. And she goes, are you feeling it? Are you feeling it? And I kind of looked up at her like almost in a daze. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm feeling it. And it was like, okay, I don't even want to ever get out of this chair again (laughs) because this was like the most soothing situation that I had been in in months. I mean, my nervous system was shot and sitting on this rock was just doing something to me. And she said, it's raising your vibration. And I said, well, honey, it's raising something because I can't even believe it. Well, she wanted me to create sort of like an entrance arbor of some type into this circle, which she referred to as a portal. And I'm like, okay, Lord Jesus in heaven, I'm in a situation. Where have I landed? Like, there is something going on here. So that night I dreamed about a, a cherry wood sort of arbor with this twisted wood and I saw it in my mind and so I created this piece for her and I wrapped it in these vines I mean this thing was cool I took wisteria uh, vines and wrapped it and it was this it was just immaculate and I took some some red polish and some kind of gold leaf, just a little bit of gold leaf, and I kind of did some touch-up with it. It was gorgeous, and installed it for her, and uh, and that was just something really special. Well, I kept having these encounters with different people that would come into the shop. They were coming out of the woodwork. I mean, I couldn't believe it how many people were were coming in and talking this language of this, you know, this new age language in Asheville, North Carolina. Like, what is going on? And I just went with it. I just, you know, what am I going to do? Like, say y'all are full of bullshit because I was starting to have these experiences And, I mean, I knew that there was something, but I just didn't know how this applied. And so I continued to just sort of be open and go to the meditation and be open to the people. And the shop started doing really well. And the shopkeepers around kept telling me, boy, you just wait till October, leaf season. Jill, you won't believe it. October is the month. And they weren't kidding. I mean, October came and I was selling things like you wouldn't believe. 
it's almost like in the summer, you know, people are on vacation with their families and they're a little on more of a budget. But leaf season is like a splurging time. People are starting to think about the holidays. They're they're shifting into the fall and they just spend money. I couldn't believe it. And I was selling like statuary and planters and urns and I'd had this woman come in one day and she had this rock and it had like a base on the, the bottom of it. It had a wick in it and it looked like a lamp, like an oil lamp. And she lit it right in my face and said, look at this. And she said, my husband's a retired veterinarian and we moved up here from uh, Miami. And he was out canoeing one day and started thinking about rocks and he just made this. And I was like, that is really cool. I said, how many do you have? And she had about 12 of them in her car. And I said, go get them. I knew, I knew from looking at that thing that I could sell the shit out of them. Well, she brought them in and sure enough, they were called flaming rocks. And I made like a shrine for these things. And so I'm like, okay, bring me 20. Okay, bring me 40. Okay, bring me 50. Hey, bring me 100. And I was selling these things like you would not believe but I always kept one lit, and that's what pulled the people in. And this flaming rock just became like a crazy trend. And what was weird was the woman that had come in and brought it in, she was she was sort of um, reserved. She, doesn't, she didn't have like a real outgoing personality. She was sweet, but she sort of seemed... Um, withdrawn a little bit I don't know she held back and but I saw the potential in that flaming rock well she and I you know built a relationship around this and she started bringing me and then I met the husband and they were super nice and I just kept selling and by November oh my god I could not believe how many of these flaming rocks I was selling so it was really increasing the sales and so the holidays, you know, they told me that Black Mountain had this this thing on a Friday night in December called Holly Jolly. And it was when they closed the whole town down and the whole town would come out and shop. And it was a real big deal. And so I had really stocked up on the flaming rocks and I was, you know, kind of getting ready for this. And it was going great. I had one of the best sales nights. I had one of the best sales days and nights that I had ever had in the time I had been there. Well, I noticed there was this young lady walking around and she kept kind of glancing over at me. And the thing is, is like, okay, if, if it's a male and a female, I guess, and a man looks at a woman, then a woman knows that he's checking her out, right? But in the gay world, it's tricky because a woman can look at a woman just to be looking. It doesn't mean that they're checking you out. But I guess there's a certain knowing or a certain uh, cue. Maybe there's a certain social cue in it. I don't know the science of it, but she kept looking at me and she would look around at the shop and then she'd kind of look at me and she'd kind of smile and I was like oh lord and of course you know I just keep doing what I'm doing talking to customers and selling and and that kind of thing but I noticed her and I 
then I just kind of ignored it because I thought that is the last thing on the fucking planet that I need is to be looking at some girl or woman or whatever. And so finally, I, I saw her and this other person and they left. And I just kept on and kept selling. And, and then I turned around. I was behind the counter and I turned around and she was standing behind the counter looking at me. And she had a little bag up on the, on the counter, like a little purse. And she started digging in it. And she said, I wanted to introduce myself. And I didn't really hear her name. And she gave me a business card. And she said, I'm looking for uh, people to buy advertising. It's for a nonprofit in Asheville. And I was wondering if you might be interested. And I know you're real busy, but I'll leave you my card. And if you're interested, you could give me a call and, and we could talk about it. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, well, thank you. And, you know, but I could tell she kept kind of smiling and she was real nervous. And that's always sort of the thing, you know, it just wasn't like a regular straight person interaction, but she looked like a straight person. I mean, maybe I'm making this up. Jesus, what's wrong with me? Well, you know, the night went on, I closed the shop, and so for the next several days, and I'd put that card, I put her card kind of up on this wall in front of, where behind my register, where I had some different cards and different people, because people are always giving you their cards and want you to buy stuff or whatever. Well, it kept eating at me and eating at me, like, call her, call her. And at, to this point, I had never asked anybody out in my life. And it wasn't like I was going to ask her out. I thought, well, maybe I'll just call her and ask her about the ad or whatever. That could be the segue into it. And, you know, there I've got this devil angel on the shoulder. See, I've got this fight going like, call her, don't, call her, don't. You don't need to call anybody. Stop it. But it's like this, you know, it's the, it's the, eternal line of cocaine it's that it's that calling of I just have to know you know and is it that I have such a wounded shattered ego persona and what the fuck well I call her on the phone and she was at work and and I said yeah I met you in my oh yeah I know who you are and she kind of laughed and I said well I was calling about you know this advertising that you were saying, and I just wanted to know about it, and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, okay. And I said, if you wanted to, like, meet for coffee or something, and she goes, sure, sure. We could meet at Old Europe, downtown Asheville. It's real quaint, and, you know, we could have coffee. And and so we made a date to meet and went to Old Europe, and she had a table in the front window, and it was really a cool little place. I really liked it. And they had big dessert cases and made all their desserts in-house. And it was a really great coffee shop and great pastries and stuff like that. And I came in and she says, hey, I'm over here. And so we got our coffee and everything and sat in the window and looked outside. And it was dark already. And, and so we got to talking and, you know, just kind of chit-chatting about this advertising and blah, blah. And we, you know, kind of go on and on. And and she starts telling me a little bit about herself. And she said, well, 
you know, I quit, she goes, I quit drinking like 16 years ago. And I looked at her and I go, wow. I said, me too. And it was 16 years ago for me too. And she looked at me and she said, are you a friend of Bill's? Which means, are you a friend of Bill Wilson, Alcoholics Anonymous founder? And I went, you know, it's like that code language. And I said, yeah, I said, I am. And she looked at me and all of a sudden, oh my God, I had a flashback. Ladies of the 80s, please help me welcome the sex kitten of Atlanta, Suzanne. And I remembered this drag show and this dancer. And I remembered how they came in like she had all these people like her entourage and she wore a fur coat. And I had probably even actually put money in her clothing And as she's sitting there talking to me, I had that flashback. And I'm thinking, this cannot be real. Well, it was. And we started talking about the bars. And we started talking about that life. And I didn't tell her that I remembered that. But I was just, I guess I couldn't even speak almost. And so we had this conversation, and of course, you know, here's the thing about Asheville, the synchronicity and the weird coincidences that start happening. I can't even tell you how many of these things had started to happen. And so I just kind of sat there in amazement, and it was like, what am I going to do with this? Is this something I'm supposed to learn about? Is this something I'm supposed to know? Is this part of this maze? Is this part of this crazy, crazy maze? How does something come full circle like this? I just don't understand what's happening. And then I had this calm come over me that was like, Jill, just go with it. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.